Today, the world is demanding more of products and packaging. Consumers want more variety. Governments are demanding sustainability. And supply chains, they're more complex than ever before. Simply put, companies that make things need to respond faster than ever to change. Welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast. I'm Laura Foti, and I'll be your host. Since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated by how things are made. And at Specrite, I get to work with product and packaging leaders to help them spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. We'll interview experts and industry leaders across food and beverage, beauty, consumer goods, and industrials and manufacturing. We're going to go beyond the shelf and get a behind the scenes look into the things you use every day and even the ones you don't. Where do the best ideas come from? How are leaders making sustainability goals a reality? What trends are here to stay? And what's just a passing fad? We're going to ask our guests all this and more. So be sure to subscribe and get ready to go Beyond the Shelf. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast, where we interview the people behind the amazing products we use every day. I'm Laura Foti, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with serial entrepreneur and manufacturing executive, Jason Azevedo. Jason became an entrepreneur at 15 years old, starting a successful apparel company with only $600. By 18, he was doing millions in revenue with Starbucks, Nike, Disney, Marvel, Volkswagen, Audi, Lucasfilms, Dodgers, and countless NBA teams. In 2009, he co-founded Advoke, one of the only U.S.-based manufacturers located in Silicon Valley, California, focused on retail displays. His emphasis on Made in America is a driving force for how the various companies he's co-founded operate, and he's worked on key projects for companies such as Arista Networks, Best Buy, Costco, Disney, Roku, Starbucks, Target, Walmart, and Warner Brothers. So you've probably seen some of Jason's work out there in your day-to-day life. He owns and operates the last standing Made in America factories and is on a mission to give back the factories and some of his wealth to the American workers through Manufacturing Revitalization Corporation of America, which we'll dig into. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Laura. I'm excited to talk today. Yeah, definitely. You're a serial entrepreneur with a focus on Made in America manufacturing. What inspired you to get started in this line of work? So I grew up in a... Uh, a factory household. Uh, so my father worked for the same company 28, 29 years. And my brothers and I got to see kind of the largely the bad side of what, what happened to American manufacturing. So I'll give kind of an idea. My, my father worked at this company 28, 29 year, years, and the management and the employees were so at each other's throat and so toxic that they the ownership kept on changing in these companies and you in the last six or seven years they worked there he got laid off just about that many times also and it wasn't because these plants weren't profitable he he actually worked in the most profitable plant in the country for for this uh, for what he did but they had created such a bad environment that they, they it was basically it was almost abusive uh from the management so my brother and I started in business and made a promise that we wouldn't be that and that we thought there you there's a very different way you could do business. So we went at what we knew we could do and, and really supporting the employees and teaming those groups up to make it happen. 
That's amazing. And I think, you know, whenever you have a personal motivation behind it, it, it really accelerates everything that you do. Um, what lessons did you learn early on from founding your own company? <laughs> so when we, when we founded the company, I was 15 years old. So it, we didn't know what we didn't know. And that, that was that was beautiful because what we got to learn was if you just come in outright saying, I do not know what I know, uh, people will help you. So we were the biggest lesson we learned was just to be open enough to go to even competitors and go, hey, I don't understand this. Can you show me? The other part of it is really understanding kind of the realm that you're in. We started in February of 2007. So right after we started kind of spending money and we'd, our business is starting to take, take shape, here comes the fall of 2007 and the crash of 2008. And every person around us is, you should not start a business. It's a horrible idea. They told us everything under the sun. And we started to believe them until one person screwed up. And they told us a comment that has created the basis for a lot of what we do. You're going to lose everything you have. And my, I remember thinking, as soon as this person said it to me, it snapped me out of the trance. Because I'm like, what are they talking about? I have $600. Like, I have nothing to lose. And it clicked that what I was starting to embody was all of everyone else's stressors and all these things that they their, their beliefs, but they're not mine. So we really learned early on to take a step back and what is really going on? Not what people are telling me is going on, not, but I want to know what my feelings are in this situation because that will let my gut make the, the right decision. Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, oftentimes we talk a lot about innovation on this podcast and I get to speak to executives at CPG companies and, and across many different industries. And the definition of innovation is it hasn't been done before. And oftentimes people will tell you a million reasons why it hasn't been done before. And your job as someone who's in innovation is to figure out, you know, the 10,000 ways not to change a light bulb so you can find the one way that that is, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's so important. Describe the the company. It was an apparel company, right? That you founded. Yeah. So we started by printing T-shirts. I mean, it was, it was not nothing fancy here. We're we're really we're, we start by just printing high school T-shirts and family reunions, all stuff. Well, what happens, and it was a huge blessing. It didn't feel like it at the time, but it really was. Was the market falls out uh, less than a year into business. So all of those kind of like promo style things that everyone's doing, um, the, the, the no, people weren't spending money on a family reunion shirt because the market was crashing so bad and everyone's losing so much. So people that were doing that business went out of, basically went out of business. So we had to pivot and we made a conscious decision to go after the most complex, most difficult, the things that nobody else would touch. Well, what that did is that brought us the coolest projects. So we were... I mean, from like working on how to print Spider-Man suit for a movie to printing, uh, we did this giant cupcake on a shirt one time. It was gaudy and atrocious, but we had done it and we had formulated the ink so that they would um, create almost like a puff paint. We, we homogenized vanilla extract into the ink so that it smelled like a cupcake when you wore it. Like just you, people come to us with the craziest ideas and we'd be like, sure, let's try it. And through that, we actually were able to help some of the ink companies develop inks that 
didn't have um, th- that were phthalate free and that were super low toxic for children's clothing. So the innovation was doing cool stuff, but we're also we were developing things that were important for people too on the same time because we had built this team that was just willing to take on anything under the sun. I think that's amazing, you know, because you know, the, the really the driver of this pivot was the market crashing. And during the market crash, you're like, well, let's go after the hardest projects that no one else wants to do, which number one also sound like the coolest projects like printing Spider-Man suit. That sounds pretty neat. How did you build a team to tackle that kind of innovation? Because that stuff is hard. So a couple things that happened there. First off, we, we were young and crazy. Um, so I go back to, you don't know what hard is because you don't know what anything is. So we, we didn't even realize that some of the stuff we were taking on was crazy. <laughs> it was that, oh, that should be done. Um, but the other part that a lot of people forget, especially when you're starting out in business, there for every group that's starting in business, there's a group exiting business. And we found a lot of friendships and mentorships in in older individuals, 60s, 70s, 80s, that had been there for through the 20, 30, 40 years of business. And we're saying, hey, we've got this idea, we want to try this. And they are literally coming just to play at our facility. Like they're like, hey, I get to screw around because I'm bored and I'm I'm, re- I'm retiring, and but I have this mass knowledge too. So it kind of just naturally built that you had these super super knowledgeable people that would help us, but you also had these, for all intents and purposes, morons who did knew nothing but were willing to try anything. So that was that combination just created this fostering of of development of ideas that you, now, now we actively go try to recreate that, but we, it wasn't, it was just a natural reaction to what was happening in our company. Yeah. That's such an important, you know, you mentioned two topics that are extremely important to me. Number one is mentorship. I have myself have benefited, benefited from mentors uh, throughout my career and my life. And the second is the concept of crystallized knowledge. There's a famous Harvard psychologist, his name is Arthur Brooks, and he just came out with a book called From Strength to Strength. And it talks about if organizations can harness that older generation of workers that has crystallized knowledge, they have that wisdom from having done it and seen almost everything. If you harness it with that up and coming generation who has the ideas and has almost that limitless mindset, that truly is when you get the most innovation is when you can combine both of those workforces and get them to both have a seat at the table. And I think that's something that for our listeners is so important to think about. Oftentimes we want to just look at what are the trends and ignore this wealth of knowledge that that has been in an organization or in an industry, for example. So I think it's amazing that you were able to harness that uh, for yourselves. Um, well, and I, the one thing I will put on that too is you also have to truly work at that because I see a lot of people that want to go get a mentor because they think it's a shortcut. And in some ways it is, but there's also get ready to be told, no, you're wrong a lot because they are trying to help you not make mistakes. So you you really have to understand there will be turmoil in that, in that relationship, but it's good turmoil. Yeah. You talked about some of the innovation that you did on the, on the printing side, like 
the ink that looked like a cupcake that smelled like vanilla. Um, I remember, you know, when we met, you mentioned a cybersecurity company did a trade show and they had this like disappearing ink. I mean, how did you guys partner with your customers to come up with these crazy ideas? So th this really cool thing happened in that moment in time. So uh, I already touched on that, uh, that marketing budgets got cut drastically. Well, the other beautiful thing that happened for us, not for, for others, but it was, it, it was, it was a moment of fortune. A lot of major players in the market started having cash flow problems. They had plenty of clients. They still had business, but they didn't have the business they used to have. So they would either go out of business or they'd have to drastically reduce. Well, now you've got this company that's got a bunch of clients and they are suddenly not able to stay open. So a client like Disney loses their, loses their vendor and they're looking for somebody. Well, we would go in and basically go, hey, you probably lost half of your marketing budget, if not more. So every dollar you spend must be more important. And they'd say yes. So we're like, why not go crazier? Like you, you cannot stand out anymore with the free giveaway t-shirt. That's not gonna, that's not worth it. So you gotta go above and beyond because that's what go, happens these times. So really that's how that came, that the customers are sitting there going, you're right, we need to, we need more oomph on everything we do because times are scary and we we only get a fourth of, of the budget this year. So we got to get it to, to work there. The other part of it too is for a giant company, running this complex work is a lot of R&D. It's a lot of dollars. So they don't want to run it. So they charge a fortune to do it. We were, we were doing the R&D ourselves. So we weren't charging the customers for the R&D. So they had these pent up ideas that they just had never been able to use. Well, we said, you know what, we'll do the R&D for you. Just give us these pins up ideas and we would use them. I love this. I mean, for, for those listening, um, we just had Sean Lavin on from Liquid IV and he talked about going to a packaging supplier that like had a niche in dissolvable packaging. It wasn't this big vendor, right? But it's like, you know, when you have these amazing, big game changing ideas, oftentimes it's not the big supplier that's gonna do that for you. It's going and finding someone like you guys were doing who will commit to that partner, that innovation partnership, because you both have so much upside in the game. And that yeah. truly is when you can have this amazing supplier customer relationship versus just that vendor customer relationship. Yeah, it's um, with us. We really go out of our way to be a partner to our with it. I mean, even at our private equity level now where we, we buy legacy companies and, and frankly, we're just regurgitating that same thing that made us so made us successful to begin with. We're buying legacy companies that have these built in beautiful wealths of knowledge and have built these super strong partnerships with their clients. And then we're coming in and bringing young, young life to them and, and, and more speed and more capital. So, but mostly, I mean, frankly, it, it, the, the big thing is we bring in just that new look and it's that same formula. Make sure you have a really good partnership with your client, which the, our, the companies we buy do. Make sure you've got a wealth of knowledge and craftsmanship and that you've, you've weathered a ton of storms and then add in the crazy and the, that, that growth mindset, the, the, the challenge side of it. 
and you get really cool results. Before we talk about MRCA, I want to talk about your work at Mosaic and later at Vogue. Um, because retail displays are something that I find really interesting. I think there's something that most people don't think about but have such an impact on sales. Um, how did you really disrupt the status? You know, what is a retail display in your words and how did you really disrupt that area? So, um, I mean, a retail display is anything that's in a store trying to get you to buy something. I mean, it, some people will go, oh, it's just the end caps at the end of the aisles. Anything you can do to get somebody to look another time and buy a product and to speed up that purchase is is the goal of a display. Uh, and we've worked with clients over the years that something is as simple as it is. But if you've got a pro, an electronics product that is targeted for a male purchaser, we, we've we've seen and, and have the data to prove that the back of the product is more important to show to them than the front. Not completely different, uh, and th these are stereotypes uh, from a large level, but the data shows it pretty, pretty heavily. Female uh, purchaser wants to see the front. So if you're selling something that plays weekend sports on, uh, on TV, show the, how the ports clip it, because the male consumer wants that. So we're looking, we've always looked for things like that. How can I, really get into the, it's not about just making something pretty that too many people just want to come in and just most polished, beautiful thing you can. Well, that's not the reality. I mean, I, I hear this all the time from people like the Apple store, everyone wants to be Apple, but they don't want to design their product as pretty as Apple. So it's like, well, the Apple store is very minimalistic and blank because the product is gorgeous. They want your eyes only going there. That's what's important to them. Where um, we, we years ago, we were one of the first companies to put video in a Costco pallet top display, and client and us went back and forth on it. Um, it we had to, we had to discuss with Costco to get them to agree to bring a, an, a, an extension cord to this area. Like it was, it was a lot more intensive than you would think to get this done. And I remember the the display launched. And we were, we were nervous because we had convinced our client to do this. And we, 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 we were pretty confident in our, in why we were doing it, but you're always nervous when, you, when you're doing something like that. So we go to the store and we just sat and you realize that the, the, they had this big glowing button and the screen would sit there. And the second someone would hit the button five, 10 seconds later, they grabbed the product, put it in there in their uh, shopping cart. So we thought, okay, Maybe this store's a fluke. We get a call from our client a week later, uh, pissed off at us. And we're like, what, what happened with this display? We sold through three months of inventory in a week and I can't get more off, uh, more in from Asia. And now Costco's upset with me because I have a display sitting there and the store managers all want more product and I can't get a more product. I'm like, wait, are you telling me that I got in trouble for selling your product faster than you expected? He goes, you never told us it was gonna be this fast. We're like, we couldn't tell how fast it was gonna be. We just believed it'd be there. So now, I mean, pretty much every person in Costco uh, has a video. That is just that that's part of that sale process. But we really try to find how can you get to the consumer? Because the, some products, it's not about the product. It's about telling the consumer how it's going to fix their life. So we really try to spend that time to the on the innovation side of it is how do you how do you really know the consumer? 
I love that story where it's like you're almost you're almost too successful and you create other other problems for the the client. And that one was a it was a video streaming service, right? And so you were really showing at the time that was so new that you had to really show people what it was or else no one would pick it up, right? Exactly. No one knew what it was yet. They were they were the market starter. So um, we had another one. We did displays years ago for a sous vide company. And till this day, most people don't know what sous vide is. And we (laughs) the client we're talking to, they're like, oh, no, everybody knows what it is. I'm like, and we had to politely tell them nobody on earth really thinks boiling your steak is a better way than grilling it. Okay. (laughs) We're like, they're like all the top restaurants in the world do it. We're like, I understand that. But the, a regular consumer that has never heard about this cooking style doesn't. So we had to take time to explain to somebody first off that it was a kitchen utensil, much less than, than anything else. I love that. I mean, you know, to me, Again, when I think about retail displays, I think of the end cap and Target where I'm going to get a bigger size of P&G tie detergent. But really, it's a vehicle for storytelling. It's a vehicle for education. But you have to be constantly rethinking these things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one thing, you know, Jason, that I'd love to get your take on because you've been in this industry and have had so much success is, you know, many retailers are being disrupted by Amazon, right? A lot of this is going online. So where do you view as kind of with this whole like retail is dead or changing? Like, how do you view the importance of retail displays and how are they evolving to keep consumers engaged? Yeah, so retail is not, not dead um, and, and it's not going to die. Uh, and I, I hear all the time with people like, well, Amazon. Well, interestingly enough, Amazon paid a lot of money to buy Whole Foods, which is a brick and mortar retailer, and has keeps on trying to get into its own version of brick and mortar. It's just going to change. Where I, the, the best case study I could ever think of was Toys R Us. So I remember going to Toys R Us when I was younger, and it was, there was the sounds and the toys and the colors and this and that. If you went to a Toys R Us store before they ended up going bankrupt, they had changed everything to this like gray color. And it was it was a stylish store, but it wasn't interactive. It wasn't fun. And guess what? They went bankrupt because you the consumer wants to go shopping. Like the, people enjoy going to stores, but you got to make them enjoy being there. And that's where retail places come in. That's where good planograms within a facility are important. But when retailers forget that the activity of shopping is something people actually enjoy, that retailer will have problems. So that's what it's changing. It's your daily products. Hey, you can, I've got things on Amazon reorder that I don't want to go pick those up. I, I, I know I need those on a certain pace. Fine. But that's not, there's other stuff. Like I like to go walking around Home Depot. Like, it's fun. You can go, you, can, you start dreaming up all these projects that you wouldn't do sitting on, on a computer. So I think that's, if anything, it's more important than ever to have really good retail presence and strategy. Uh, we've also, we've seen data that a lot of store, a lot of people will use re- retail stores as a showroom and a testing ground and then go buy online. But that's okay. The, an OEM must understand that, that you need to still have that. Uh, Best Buy has done a very good job at this actually. 
they turn their store into five or six stores within stores. And they aren't selling a lot of the product. The, the, a lot of the product is being sold on bestbuy.com, but people are going to the store to go look at it. And that is, that's kind of that evolution of these are show, these are largely going to become showrooms. So you can't judge them just on what is that store's performance. You must connect it to the larger picture with the online presence. I love that. And I'm immediately thinking through anecdotes of how I've, I've done everything you just talked about in my personal life. <laughs> Which goes, which, you know, I always like to connect like the research with like, oh yeah, I'm, I am like everyone else. You know, like I went to Target yesterday because I needed some batteries for my Apple AirTag, which was dying. And I look and the line was like the longest I'd ever seen. And I'm like, okay, I do not need to buy batteries here. But I'm like, I do want a new fall candle. So I'm going to go smell all the new scents and then buy it and do the two hour pickup later. So I can be more efficient, right? And then I think about, and then I think about Best Buy where I bought, I wanted these like Norma Tech recovery boots because I've been, I'm getting older and when I play sports now, my whole body hurts. And so there's these recovery boots that like, you know, all the pro athletes use and they were expensive. And I'm like, well, I want to try them before I buy them. And I go to Best Buy, I try them. And then I said to the guy, okay, I want to buy them. And he's like, well, you have to buy them on bestbuy.com. And I'm like, how do you not have this in the store? But to your point, like, they know they have figured out yeah. how to get this mix of like experiential discovery. It's fascinating. Yeah, and, and it's I, I I met with a uh, with a potential client uh, that actually did end up doing business with us. Uh, but we sat down and they're like, "Well, you know, we're we're online. Our bulk of our sales is online. We really don't need retail splits." And I'm like, "You don't. I, I'm not trying to be rude. You don't know what you're talking about." your customers are going to see the product somewhere. They need to go see it. And they weren't the smallest ticket item. And I'm just like, you, you, I understand Amazon is where you're selling them all, but that's not where people are seeing them. And what you really don't want as a retailer is people using Amazon to see your products because then they're gonna start returning all the time. And that is scary for OEMs. So really, that there's a lot of old mentalities that are stuck right now that we are trying to educate people. It's like, Hey, um, you, even if your final purchase is at Amazon, you do not want that to be your testing site. You like, you still need brick and mortar to test products on. And the, and the retailers that get it are just killing it. They're they're, they're the OEMs are coming in going, yeah, I'm, my sales are better than they've ever been. And that in cap is a huge chunk to do with it. That's amazing. It's never been harder to be a marketer though, because if you think about how marketers are constantly measured and evaluated, it's oftentimes the last touch of point of purchase. And it's so hard to prove that someone saw your product, discovered it here. You know, it's hard to find that first moment of discovery. So much of this still is, I think, intuition, knowing your customer really well, doing a lot of that market research. Because to your point, if you only look at where people are buying stuff, you honestly would never invest in where they're actually finding it. And those things go hand in hand. Yeah. And we have done work with clients to try to capture that first touch uh, there. I mean, from putting buttons on displays so that we know how many times was this interacted with a day. Like we, we, we have it. Cause you're right. That, that blur is really, really hard to connect it to what, what we try to push is, hey, you, try going without the blur for, or try putting a product that is on that display, but not at one of the other retailers and see what it does. 
And you can often find out that oh, only the ones that were on that display are selling on Amazon, even though there's an additional SKU on Amazon. So there are ways to try to connect those, but it, it, it is much more an art than a science. Yeah, you do like the A-B testing and then look for the lift of that product. Yeah. I think that's genius. Um, you know, where do you see as the future of retail displays? Like, where is it going? You've obviously been part of a lot of this innovation with bringing video and experiential to it. There's two directions it's going. Experiential is, is the most important, but the, the reality is there's also Big Brother coming. Uh, there's, I, I've met with multiple companies that are, have developed cameras that can create a profile from you the second they see you. Uh, they, it takes into, it, it uses a huge AI algorithm. It can, re, it can convey the experience of that display directly to who it thinks you are. What's scary about that is the, and I guarantee someone's already done it, but that will then start getting connected to your Facebook pixels and all that. So that by the time you enter retail, they already know who you are uh, or who the algorithm has decided you are and your trends and your patterns. So there's 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 going to be a large push on that side of it. Uh, we're, I've been hearing it for a couple of years and a lot of people kind of flirting with this big brother-esque uh, effect. Uh, I have yet to hear of anybody who's done it on a multi-channel uh, multi, uh, multi direction, but th- that is coming. And the reality is, is completely custom tailored marketing and experience is going to be coming just like your Facebook feed is at home or on your phone, that, that, that day's there uh, for retail. So we, we, I, I think it's gonna be important that people are cautious with it because they can also over, over saturate and mess it up because there is a level of you wanna take people through your experience for them, not what you think that will just convince them to buy. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, listen, I'm super conflicted on this topic as a consumer and as a marketer, because as a marketer, I'm like, I want to make you, I want it to be so tailored to you. I want you to feel like it's made for you. But as a, as a consumer, I'm like, every time I talk about kitty litter, I then see 10 ads for kitty litter, like immediately, you know, and at some point I'm like, I didn't even Google search this, like they're listening. Um, So I think there is that balance of like helpful versus creepy. And I think, you know, we've yet to figure out what exactly that is. Yeah. And I, I think there's a level of caution that I have seen from major players in the industry that they they are handling this situation professionally, I, I guess is the best way to say it. I mean, Target has a famous story that they they messed up a couple of years ago and they started hammering this, uh, I, I believe, I think it was... Uh, teenage woman still lived with her parents starts hammering her with prenatal vitamins and uh, diaper ads and stuff. And the dad went to the store and was pissed that they would send it to his uh, teenage daughter. Well, actually targets algorithm had figured out that she, that she was pregnant and she had to tell her dad that she was pregnant. And it was a step over that privacy line that a corporate entity was telling a father that he was going to be a grandfather. So it was that people after that, I saw the industry really kind of take a step back and go, okay, we need to understand what we're playing with at very least. Yeah, totally. Before it turns into iRobot, you know, Will Smith can't save us all. I want to talk about your work at Manufacturing Revitalization Corporation of America. 
um, because I think it, it really goes back to the core of how you got started in this business, right? And so, you know, can you talk a little bit about what it is and what makes it different? Yeah. So MRCA, we are a private equity fund. So we take private investor dollars and we go buy legacy U.S. manufacturing companies. And they're usually going to be second, third generation companies. We aren't pigeonholed into any specific type of manufacturing, but they have to be, they have to have a legacy behind them and they have to be very good at what they do. And we come in and we buy these companies and add in usually the energy that the owners don't have anymore. They're the owners usually are at retirement age. They are, they've frankly, the last two decades have been a hell of a storm for them. You figure in the last two years or two decades, they've gone through the dot-com boom, the September 11th, they, um, the uh, 2008 crash, and then COVID. I mean, just in the last two decades. And these companies have survived and built off of that. So we want that resilience. And then we take the company and come and add the come add energy outside views, the support that we can from 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 our headquarters, very much boots on the ground. I spend as much time on the factory in the factories as I possibly can. And then we put a little twist on it because our whole thing is we, we're protecting local communities and we're protecting American workers. So the way that we actually exit out of the private equity fund is we are transferring 100 percent of the ownership to the employees when when we exit so in about five to seven years we're going to take our national portfolio and use an employee stock ownership program to move 100 percent. so the american factory worker will own the factory that they work in and really that was that's a core importance for us here is making sure these whatever this legacy is that we bought from this owner is protected in their local community I love that. And I think, it, you know, you talked earlier at the beginning about your dad experiencing so much turmoil, you know, when when he had his job and multiple layoffs. And and essentially you're going finding these U.S. manufacturers that have made it through all the outsourcing and, and everything that's gone on the past two decades, three decades. And you're saying, hey, we're going to help you grow this business and give it back to you. Right. So that your community, so that your families can stay rooted. I think that's extremely powerful and different than anything. I mean, I'm very familiar with the private equity space and I don't see many people doing this. Um, I think there's another twist on this too and benefit to us as a community because when I think about COVID and I think about a lot of the supply chain problems is because we've outsourced so much manufacturing. You know, the whole, whole idea of like shortage of masks because we don't make, we're not able to make these things here anymore. I mean, what has COVID really shown us about the importance of having U.S.-based manufacturing? So, uh, I'll kind of even—I'll take a step back so it it, it, play, uh, it makes the full picture a little clear. American manufacturing has been on on a, on a rebound and a growth for a long time, uh, for probably solidly the last seven eight years, and the the reason is. It was the intersection of innovation and and product design. So uh, manufacturing has innovated a long time. These aren't are your char these aren't like your Charles Dickens dirt floor factories, grease throwing all over the place, dangerous. No, we, uh, if you look at like even the new Tesla plants, these are innovation wonders. Well, the problem is nobody knew knows that unless you're in the space. 
You don't know that it is fiscally responsible to produce in the United States. You can produce here cheaper than you can in Asia in, in a, most situations now, a lot of, uh, definitely a lot of situations. So the general public did not know that. And even supply chain geniuses did not know that. They were, it's embedded in us. Send it to low wage countries and that's the cheap way to do it. Or that, that's how we got to do it. So we needed a catalyst. We needed something to force people to look at it because the stigma was too strong. Enter COVID. COVID happens and we, we as a country literally cannot get things. Not, not they're more expensive, not they're more, uh, they're going to take longer, literally cut off from the suppliers. And that catalyzed supply chain managers to look. And they were like, you know what? Fine. I'm just going to pay more, but I'm going to do it in the U.S. for four months to just to get through. And then they started running the numbers and they're like, wait, um, I don't need to only do four months. It actually works. I'm just going to do my whole supply chain here. And we're just watching the groups that 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 were buying, that we're looking at. Everybody is going, I, I have so much opportunity in front of me because that person who moved a little bit back, he's calling his buddies going, dude, I, I just realized something. I don't know how I missed it. The U.S. is viable for us. So that's really what COVID did. It just it forced people to break past the stigma of what they thought American manufacturing was. Yeah. I mean, this is something that personally is really exciting to me. My grandparents worked in factories. Um, I'm from Pennsylvania. A lot of communities in Pennsylvania, like Bethlehem, were devastated by the steel industry shutting down. So it's exciting for me to see a lot of these communities being revitalized. And a lot of these jobs are now, they're no longer low wage, right? They require, they've, <laughs> there's been kind of more of an upskilling as well so that there's more opportunities here. Yeah. So I, I go back to that cross point of innovation. So you used to have to have a whole factory full of a bunch of people and they were doing, they were doing tasks that weren't necessarily necessary for a, a human intellect. Humans are by far the most important thing in any factory situation. You cannot automate all the jobs out. It's not possible. Tesla tried this and it, it failed miserably. And if, frankly, if Elon can't figure something out, I think that, that that's a scary sight. Uh, and they actually had to pull out half their automation. So humans are incredibly, incredibly important. But there are two jobs that have two things that had to be pulled out of the human side of factories, things that were dangerous. There's no reason why a human should be in a, in a dangerous situation if if a a process or an, or an innovation can get them out of it and monotonous menial tasks like pressing a button or lifting something up and putting it on the next shelf. Those two things got pulled out. So what's happening is you've got these highly effective, highly trained people operating these factories. And they, unlike any other industry that I've ever found, manufacturing will take any person in the door and train them on site while they pay them to train. That you're not gonna find that anywhere. So you get this zero barrier to entry. You don't need an education. You don't need all this. So you're coming in hopefully debt free and the company's gonna train you to do the job running sometimes a $5 million piece of equipment. Well, guess what? They're gonna, they're gonna pay you pretty well for that too also because they wanna make sure that after they've trained you, they, they, that you stay there. So 
it's really that these are not low wage jobs anymore. The, the, and, and more and more as more innovation comes, the humans start using the thing that they're so incredible at, which is their, their thought. The more they, you can do that, the more, more and more people get paid. You know, the, the last thing I want to mention is on the topic of U.S. manufacturing that I'm seeing when I talk to customers is the focus on on sustainability. You know, people are no longer looking at, well, how sustainable is, is my packaging or the product? It's like, how far am I shipping it? And people are realizing if I'm going to sell something in the U.S. and I care about my carbon footprint and sustainability of this whole life cycle of the product, maybe I shouldn't be constantly importing things from across the world anymore. And so I think that's going to be another driver of what we're seeing of people wanting to look domestically um, and, and not just domestically. Many of the companies we work with are multinational. It's just about finding the most efficient suppliers in each in each market so that they can have a more sustainable business model. Yeah. And taking that even a step further with us, the normal private equity blueprint is buy a bunch of companies in the same industry, shut down all the plants, build one mega plant and supply and supply the entire United States. That concept is dead if uh, dying, if not dead. We purposely buy and look at regional companies and leave them in the community that they serve. And if you can build the same product in two different places, still get your still get your efficiencies, but now you're only regionally moving them. And I mean, companies like Coca-Cola have done this for years because their product was heavy and really hard to move. Well, now as fuel prices and everything and carbon footprints are becoming very important to everybody, that more and more people are starting to see that value as you bring up of, hey, let's try to get it as close as possible. And is there a way? And oftentimes there is. Yeah, we're getting near the end of our time. I could talk about this stuff all day, Um, but we're going to close out with my favorite segment, which is rapid fire. Uh, Jason, what's your favorite product right now? Um, That's a it's a hard one. I I don't really buy a lot of things. Um, I, I will say. I, the, the iPhone is, is still one of the most amazing concepts I've ever seen. And they just keep on making it more solid. So I'll, I'll give that one to Apple. <laughs> All right. That's a good one. Also, they just announced yesterday that iPhone 14 is coming. I can't wait to see what that's going to have. Um, what product or packaging trend are you most excited about right now? I, I think actually, as you hit on it, the more regional based, uh, I'm really liking what's being done on the digital space for for packaging production so that you can really tailor to the region that you're in and not have to do these kind of giant wide ambiguous designs i love that Um, all right keep kill or change i'm going to give you three random products you decide decide what you would kill aka discontinue what you would keep as is and what you would change so the first one is linen sheets very specific the second one is iced coffee which i love and the last one is okay. This is a great. These are great options. Last one, Air Jordans. So you have linen sheets, iced coffee, and Air Jordans. What would you keep, kill, or change? Okay, um, kill Air Jordans. I've never understood why people like them. Um, <laughs> I just, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, I also I also wear cowboy boots every day, so <laughs> I'm in a whole different realm. Um, keep iced coffee. Uh, and I guess change linen sheets because oh it's probably gosh. good to change your sheets. 
What a hot take with the Air Jordans. I can't wait to hear what people say about this. I'm going to tag oh, yeah. Adam. I'm going to tag Adam Peak. I'm going to tag our friend Adam Peak immediately. I'm sure he'll have some fighting words for you, my friend. But Jason, thank you so much for joining us. How can people follow you? The best way, if you're interested in what we're doing at MRCA and you, uh, whether it be investing with us or looking at our companies or any of that, um, MRCA.net is the best way. There's actually a way on there to get a, uh, I think it's a 30 minute slot. It puts it right on my calendar. I'm down to discuss anything. I have had business questions. I've had uh, like investment questions. Let me know. It's on there you, and it's free. It, it's free of charge, but it's wide open. You can just pick a time. Um, also on LinkedIn, I were the uh, MRC is quite active on there. Definitely a lot of what we think is cool going on in the manufacturing world. At uh, I think it's uh, LinkedIn backslash MRCA. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. And if you like this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks, Jason. Beyond the Shelf is presented by Specrite the first cloud-based platform for specification management. Say goodbye to spreadsheets, share drives, and legacy systems, and digitize your specs in a secure single source of truth. With Specrite, you can easily share and collaborate on specs with other departments and across your entire supply chain network. Taking a spec-first approach enables you to accelerate product and packaging development, go to bid faster, report on sustainability, and ultimately spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. To learn more, visit specright.com. That's S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T.com.